Welcome to Life of the School, episode 101. My name is Tanea Hibbler, and I'm a biology teacher at Brophy College Preparatory in Phoenix, Arizona. This episode, I'm interviewing Aaron Matthew. Aaron teaches honors biology and AP biology at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. In addition to his classroom teaching, Aaron is the advisor for the BioBuilder Club at ABERHS. And this fall, Aaron is beginning his 25th year as a high school teacher. He was named the NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher for the state of Massachusetts in 2015. In 2016, he started the Life of the School podcast, where he interviews life science teachers from around the country and their teaching practices and goals. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets. That's Mr. M-A-T-H-I-E-U Tweets. Awesome. That was a great intro. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously we're doing something a little bit different for this episode, uh, and uh, I've asked uh, Tanea to to interview me as we have just gotten past the 100 episodes. We're starting the second 100 episodes. I don't know if we're going to do another 100, but we've done a first 100, so I thought it would be... It'd be good to kick off sort of the the next generation of podcasts by by being interviewed myself and and Tanea uh, <laughs> got roped right into it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really excited to be here. And I have tons of questions for you. So before we get started into your traditional questions, yeah. just um, your the spelling of your last name. Give me a little bit about Matthew. Like, what's the history of your of your last name? Yeah, so uh, my last name is uh, is French. So it's uh, and my father was born in Canada, in, in Quebec, and so my my father's family is very French Canadian. Um, cool. And so uh, my father's Andre Georges Mathieu, and my grandfather is Florian, and my grandmother's Julie, and like I I come from a very Quebecois family. So uh, the spelling Matthew M A T H I U would be you know it's it's more Mathieu. If it was in French, um, we anglicize it a little bit and call it Matthew. And uh, I always joke that as you move from Canada south, somewhere around like the Mass Pike, if you get south of the Mass Pike, nobody can pronounce my name. But if you get north of the Mass Pike and get into Vermont and New Hampshire, where you have a lot of French Canadians uh, in the northern part of Massachusetts and upstate New York and Vermont and, and New Hampshire and Maine, like I... You know, I do a lot of road races and it's not uncommon for you to, as you're coming across the finish line, for them to announce your last name. Um, And I've noticed that if I'm in Connecticut, my last name is probably going to be mispronounced uh, any place south of there. But up north, if I run in Vermont, like they will they will say it and they'll nail it. It'll sound like everybody knows how to say it. Um, So do you speak French? Uh, a little bit. I, I took French all through school, including through college. Uh, my comprehension of French used to be very, very high. So like when they would test me, I grew up in a house, you know, where, where I go over my grandparents and the adults would all speak French, um, you know, when they didn't want the kids to understand it. So uh, (laughs) I I have a, I have a pretty good ear for it. Uh, And I, I, I would say that I am, uh, I am probably a couple of months against away from being passably fluent, but I don't practice it on a regular basis. So um, I can comprehend a fair amount of French, um, but every year that I don't practice, it gets a little bit worse. <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to have to come back to this after I get through the other questions. Um, I'll have to talk to you about your um, some educational philosophies and language, yeah. but we'll come back to that after we get to the, the, the bulk of the main questions. All right. Sounds good. So can you tell us, Aaron, how did you become a science teacher? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I took, having talked to a lot of different people, I took a pretty traditional route. I went to undergrad at UMass um, in the uh, early 90s, and so at UMass Amherst, um, and I was studying biology. And when I went in, I think originally I, I sort of went in in a pre-med style track thinking, maybe I'll go to med school when I'm done. But I'll be honest, uh, you know, the one thing I've learned from talking to other teachers is that... Um, uh, my uh, metacognition at 19, 20, 21 was pretty darn low. Um, I did not know what I knew and did not know what I didn't know. And I'm, I was just like this very wide eyed, probably pretty naive person about the world and didn't really know how anything worked. But I was kind of turned off by the way people who were pre-med approached their studies, um, which isn't you know, maybe the best way of describing all people, but some of the people who were sort of the high performers in, in the biology track, uh, they're kind of ruthless about their studies. Like they were like super competitive and super like, you know, they, they were, it was all about their GPA. There was all about their transcripts. They, you know, it, there was a, I encountered a handful of my peers who they had their heart set on going to med school and they didn't strike me as, um, they didn't approach learning sort of the same way I did. Um, and I didn't feel like I was as ruthless <laughs> as yeah. they were. They weren't um, collaborative then at all. No, not particularly. Or they were only collaborative up to a point. Like they, and and again, it was sort of, I, I they didn't feel like, I didn't feel like when I was like spending time with them or studying with them or in study groups with them and we were working on things, um, and again, this is representative of the group that I spent some time with. So not like it can't, it's not everyone who goes to medical school this way, but I, I, some of the language that they used about, you know, the process of, you know, like their other students and, and they just, they didn't strike me as some of the, the pre-med folks I met, they didn't strike me as super nice. And I was also fairly aimless. Like these were people who knew what they wanted to do and they were like ruthless about getting there. And I just wasn't ruthless about getting there. Like, right. And I was like, well, maybe I'm not somebody who should go to med school. Like, if this is what you need to do to go to med school and the way people describe sort of the competitiveness of getting in and all of that, like, I wasn't I wasn't driven to be in medicine. So I started looking at some other things and I had gone to a really great high school and I, I, I just really always respected my teachers and I always liked the concept of education. I think I had the the, the conception that you know, you couldn't live, you know, you would be just poor and never have any money. And, you know, it'd be, it was an awful job and it'd be miserable. And I think that I had a lot of, I didn't view it as a happy career in spite of the fact that I'd seen really good professionals in my life. Um, but I decided to start pursuing things like that. So I started TAing uh, the intro bio course at my, at, at UMass. I was one of the few undergrads. And then I started working with a summer school at my old high school, I took a class where I tutored high school students, um, and I, when I did that, I went in and I, I would go and meet this group of, of other people who were all tutoring in the same spot. We were all tutoring at a high school, and uh -huh. when I would go in, there would be notes left for me. If you come in today, please come find me in the library, da 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 Like, I had a group of kids who would, like, I connected with teenagers. Like, I don't know why. 
but I just did. And I introduced myself to the other teachers and I talked to them and I got to know the the program coordinator. That's actually how I got the summer school work that I did is because I asked her a bunch of questions and I asked how to connect and what the best spaces were. And then I introduced. And so I'd go and have these meetings with these other college students. And they're like, yeah, I went and sat in the library at the school for two hours and nobody asked for my help. And I was, and I think like some of them were like angry at me because I would show up and they'd be like notes for me to show, (laughs) but I connected with those. And so from there I decided, well, maybe I'll apply to grad school and get a master's in education. And then I started just applying to schools to teach at after I graduated my undergrad, but before I started grad school. Mm. (laughs) And so I started teaching at 22. (laughs) And so and then did you do a like a traditional teacher program as well? Um, I did a my version of the traditional teacher program. So I was accepted into a traditional teaching program. Mm-hmm. But because I got a job working as an 80% of a teacher, I took a 0.8 uh, teaching position. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I ended up doing is for the non the point two of that, I ended up going in and one of the teachers at the building let me, was my technically cooperating teacher in student teaching. So I took over her block biology class for like two months to get the hours of student oh, teaching. Cool. Where she was the supervisor, but I was a teacher in the building. Right. And so, and so like there were several other things, like there were, there was like a lab, there was like a teaching lab where you would have to do like mock lessons and stuff like that. And I got that waived and there were a couple of other things that were there. Um, And I was able to get, because I was teaching and I was able to do all of my classes at night and then get my student teaching done. Like my student teaching was done before I finished methods. Like I didn't do it in the order you're supposed to do it or that. And I did the, I did all of the credits in 12 months. Um, I took, yeah, I took like, uh, I took an overload over the summer to finish because I also knew that I was probably, because my teaching position got cut at the end of that year and I knew I was likely going to be moving, um, at the end of that. And this is the nineties. There, there is no online class in the nineties. Like (laughs) I was like, I got to wrap this thing up by the end of August because I'm probably going to be teaching someplace else in the state and not going to be able to get back and forth to finish up. So, um, yeah, I kind of, I did an insane, my first year of teaching was sort of insane because I got, I did like an overload master's course load to get it done plus uh learning to teach so would you say that you're a natural born teacher oh gosh um or 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 you or or let me add this question do you do you feel like the teacher preparation programs that exist today or you know when you started teaching do you think they adequately prepare teachers for what they have to face in the classroom yeah, so I would say that um, the teacher program that I went through, it does not look like the teacher programs look today, or at least how some programs look today, uh, in terms of when I talk to newer teachers and what the teachers are doing. And I would also say that I don't think, you know, having talked to, you know, a bunch of teachers who've entered the career in the last five or 10 years, <laughs> um, I think there's enormous diversity in those groups. Uh, sort of back to that first point, I think there were certain characteristics about me um, from my science background, from my cur- my curiosity, and from my personality, and just sort of the person I was, that made teaching a very good fit, that I had some strengths and that I had some weaknesses. And I would say that my teacher preparation program did almost nothing to help me identify what those strengths and weaknesses were um, and was not crucial to my teaching journey. But my first job that I had 
the fact that I went in and I had immensely positive mentors. Um, and again, that could be like, you could argue one of those mentors was my cooperating teacher. So it could have worked out that way, but my department head was amazing and really helped me see the things that I wasn't, that I didn't naturally do in the classroom. Um, and so that I could improve those things, but then also pointed out things that I did that he said, Oh, I really liked how you naturally did that. That seems like a really good strength. Like that's something that you just happen to do. You've only been in the classroom for two months, but I noticed you were doing, he was talking to me about like my body position in, in the lab setting. And he was like, I noticed that when somebody asked you your question, you came and stood in such a way. So while you were addressing the one person's question, you set your body in frame so that you actually saw all of the students in the classroom. And apparently that was just something I did. Um, I don't know. It's because I was terrified they were doing something behind my back or I don't know what it was, but I had the natural awareness that, that, that I just did that. And he said, you did it like three different. And I was like, well, did I just do it once? And he's like, no, you did it like three different times. You were going to different groups. And every time you talked to the groups, you positioned your body such that you could see the scope to see where other groups were and what they were doing. And he said, that's not something that people always naturally do. See, so like, don't lose that. Don't lose right. sight of the fact that you're doing good things in there. So I would say those type of things. And then the other thing I would say is that my... Um, there were classes that I took in my preparation program that did pay dividends down the line. But I know that from talking to students that were in, in those classes, I think I was getting more out of them because I was actually in a school. So right. for example, my special, I took a, a, a special ed class and the person who ran it was actually the director of special education in one of the nearby school districts. And it was an amazing class for me because I had IEPs and I had 504 plans of kids that were given to me. And so I could take the discussions that we were having in class and what we were talking about in terms of accommodations and modifications and, and was I serving my students well? And it wasn't an abstract concept. So but you had were soaking up the information, you were applying it because yeah. you were in that setting and you were yeah. like, I need this. Yes. Give it to me. Yeah. So, and I think that talking to some of the new teachers, I think that a lot of programs now have teachers in the building more than my program would have naturally put me. Um, so I think that I, I really would love it to see a situation where like, like teachers when they started their career really were doing like, as like a deeper internship, more observations, more work with students, more work in the classroom when they're getting their theory and their background. Um, and that's really a hard thing to do, but either there's either more of that like sort of training with cooperating teachers uh, or taking the load off of first or second year teachers so that they have more, like more support when they're doing that. Um, right. Because both of those things naturally happen for me. My first year, I didn't have a full teaching load. You know, it was still a lot and I had great mentorship. And so I accidentally backed into the kind of program that helped me get off on the right foot. Um, so so yeah. um, it makes me think about how there's teachers who are going to be starting their first year teaching now and they are being dumped into an online environment and maybe um, have no concept of what even a normal classroom looks like, let alone a virtual classroom, but they're going to be expected to, you know, fill the shoes of the, you know, of a teacher and, and do great. <laughs> I, I can't imagine being in that, in that, um, that, I just can't imagine being put into that. 
as a first year teacher. You okay? Let me tell you something. You yeah. seem too young to. Uh, when I we're on a podcast, so people can't see you. But if you could see Aaron, he does not look old at all. And um, I think you pop, you could be younger than me. I don't know. I have to find out soon. But you've been teaching twenty five years. Um, so, uh, and I know you have a thirteen year old son, um, and I do too. Yeah, that's so my younger. What what kind of path did you go through to get to your current school, and how did you keep yourself looking so young? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, people say that to me all the time. Imagine if I cut off the massive, like giant head of hair I have right now and the, <laughs> the and, and the pandemic beard that I have, because by the way, when I cut the pandemic beard off, I look way younger. Uh, like <laughs> there's going to come a time where I'm going to freak some people out. Cause right now I look like I just walked out of a cabin in the middle of the woods for, where I was working <laughs> on my man, my manifesto for the last six months. But, um, yeah. Uh, so how did my path? So yeah. So my first year, um, stressful great there and then i got um another teaching job that was awful um and i would say that if that was my first year teaching um I was in person in a building, but um, I th could say I empathize with a lot of the isolation that people are going to feel in the upcoming year. I moved far away from my home. Um, I didn't I moved away from where my friends were. Uh, I just basically I kind of panicked and took a job in a part of the state, which was more than an hour away from really anybody who I knew. Right. Um, but it was a job. And I was like, I need a job. I need to start teaching. And so they offered me a job and it was predominantly teaching biology, which was good. And the school looked like a school. Um, <laughs> and like they said that, and you know, it was, it looked like I was gonna be able to make, make enough money to pay rent. And so like I took the job and I was, I was assigned a mentor who had no common prep periods with me, who oh, wow. was in the building, like at the very beginning of the day and was like out before the last bell, uh, provided me no support whatsoever. Um, I, I was, it was very much a, here's some textbooks, go figure this out kind of thing. Nobody right. talked about like what, nobody shared their curriculum with me. Nobody asked me how I was like, nobody asked me how I was doing. Like I, it dawns on me that like, not a single person in that building beyond a superficial, how are things going? Nobody really genuinely asked me how they could help me. Um, you know, that's, and I was, and really I was 23 and, and I was 23. Like, and right. I, if you think I look young now, I was 20, <laughs> I was 23. Like I was, I was, I was a baby teacher with like a 0.8 of a year underneath me, my, my belt. Um, and so I really struggled that year feeling isolated not knowing. I got along great with the kids because I've always gotten along pretty great with the kids. Um, but I did not get, I did, I felt very lost there. Um, and so I taught there for a year. Um, and I often say that if that had been my first year teaching, I would probably work for a pharmaceutical company right now. Okay. Um, because, uh, and I actually almost, I almost left in the middle of the year and went back to my first school. Like I, they, they had something happen in the middle of the year and they had like a long-term sub thing and something like that. And, and my old department head and I talked and I had applied, I had applied, I even went back there and I talked to him and, um, he, I asked him point blank cause we had that kind of relationship. I was like, is this going to hurt me down the road? Like you and I both know that this is not a long-term gig. This would me just be bailing on the place I am in there. I said, are people going to look at the fact that I bailed on a contract in one place to come back here? Are they going to look at it? badly when I apply to future jobs and he's like I can't tell you that people won't look at that with like skepticism like yeah I think in they, Arizona they can take your teaching license from you 
Oh yeah, I don't think they. Yeah, I don't know that they would have done that back then, but uh-huh. it it would have like, yeah. I mean, it, but it was that. It was like I felt that I felt so disconnected from that building that like my concern was not for leaving that building because I felt so I felt so disconnected from that job as a place that I didn't care about leaving that building. Right. <laughs> but I did worry about like my career. Like, would this be something that would hurt me down the road? Um, and he said, and he gave me good advice, which he always has. Um, and I've gone back to him a few times. So after that, I applied to a, a whole bunch of jobs and I interviewed in a lot of different places. Um, and I got a job close to Boston and my now wife and I, uh, found an apartment just outside of Boston. And, uh, we, we moved in together and we got engaged um, and we, she had her job in Boston and I had a job just next to Boston and I made, we made no money, but we lived in the cheapest little apartment, um, <laughs> just North and, and it was like, felt connected and it was great. And I taught in a, what is a pretty, like a, a pretty poor school, um, like very few resources. Uh, they pay their younger teachers better than their older teachers. You cap out really uh, early, but I had a ton of autonomy to teach there. But after two years there, actually after one year there, um, a couple of my friends who were teaching out at other schools started talking to me about now that I was three years into my career, like you start to become like desirable, like, you, like, oh, you've gone through a couple of years, you're, you're less of a risk <laughs> okay. to do it. And so like some people started asking me like if I wanted to come out and I actually had a, I had a really weird sort of interview thing where I, I semi got headhunted by a couple of friends who I played soccer with to come out and apply for this middle school teaching job, which I didn't want to be a middle school teacher, but I had two friends who taught in the building, actually three friends who taught in the building, two of whom I played soccer with and somebody else who I knew through other circumstances. And they realized like I, it was actually a bad fit. Like the department had loved me, the department loved me, but they were going to have me teach like middle school physical science. Like, and they had somebody who applied who was actually qualified to do it. And he, the, the guy was like, I really would love to offer you this job. But the fact is, is that you're just not the most qualified person. You're a great, you're, you'd be great. You'd be great for it. He's like, but we also have two people who are life science middle school teachers who are retiring in the next two years. You might be a really good fit for that. So, you know, why don't, if you're okay with that, you know, please keep an eye out and we'll come back. So he put it in my head that like, to start thinking about like, really, where do I want to be forever? Um, Like, and so I grew up in a very, I grew up in a very college town. As I said, the teachers were super respected. Um, It was a a very, it was very academia like, Um, and the Western suburbs of, of, of Boston has a lot of schools that have well-respected teachers and, and a lot of, you know, collegiality and that stuff that I wasn't, hadn't really seen a ton of in my first couple of years of the career. And so I started gathering information. And so I was finishing up my fourth year or I was about midway through my fourth year um, teaching. And I said, I am going to go and get my last teaching job. And it is going to be at one of these like, like eight or nine schools. (laughs) So, and I literally just went and I went to those schools. And, and the funny thing is Acton wasn't originally on my list. Um, but I met the assistant superintendent at a job fair where I was going to see some of those other jobs. And it was, it was the, it's the same type of school. It was just a little further out from the city, like literally like one town, one town further in the city, um, (laughs) from the city, from where I was. And so I met him and then they called me in and they like really rapidly offered me the job. Like they, like, I think I got, I, I signed papers like the first week of April, um, which is, you know, I think I, I met, I met, uh, the assistant superintendent, like 
the third week of March. And I think I signed papers two weeks later. Like they like didn't mess around. They were like, and, and can, can you tell me is at this time in Massachusetts where was like, were, were there cities that were growing or was there like a, was it a competitive, like how, how is it getting a teaching job in the state in general? Yeah. So it's, it's so at this point, so this is 2000, this is, this is uh, boomers are starting to retire. Um, uh, the, there's a, there's a huge turnover happening. They'd had ed reform of the previous few years. So you could get a teaching job pretty well, but to get a teaching job in the kind of school, like I'm teaching now, they weren't hiring brand new teachers right out of school. They want somebody with a couple years experience. They want somebody with a little bit of seasoning because they're tougher places to teach. Right. Um, so it was, you could get a job as I sort of showed, cause I bounced around quite a bit in my first couple of years, but it was, it was competitive to get a job. Um, but it was competitive to get like those types of jobs, the, the districts that were going to pay you like a professional, I right. guess that would be the best way to say it. Um, I mean, you can get a job <laughs> anywhere. Uh, I would say that Massachusetts has light teacher shortages in STEM and Spanish. That seems okay. to be sort of consistently, um, but not to the same degree, I think, as other parts of the country. And to answer your question, yeah, the district that I, they hired me, I think the school was at like 14 or 1500 students. And at a couple of years ago, we were over 2000. So wow. they were, they were just about to ramp up to go in a, uh, they were going, they were beginning a 10 year boom, which we've actually pulled back a little bit from, um, we were a, a, about 1850 now in terms of our size, but for a few years we were, uh, at or above 2000 for a few years. So we, they were just starting to really ramp up that boom right around then. They hired four science teachers the year they hired me. So, so Aaron, like, um, how many years do you think you have left in you then? Um, if you had asked me this, like, uh, I don't know, like six months ago, I would have said, I, it's hard to say. Um, so I, I will max out sort of in my retirement, uh, in 12 years from now. Like I get, like, I won't make, I, I, my retirement sort of fully vests, if you will, in 12 years in Massachusetts. Um, and at that point, it will be interesting to sort of see what the state of education is. Um, I still fundamentally love what I do and have a lot to do. And um, as you have pointed out, I have a sort of a, a youthful vibe. Uh, and energy. Uh, and I will, I absolutely, at that point, both my kids will be, you know, out of house and out of, out of college and my wife won't be ready to retire for another, you know, eight or nine years or something like that. So I will need something to do. Um, so it'll be an interesting, I will be coming to a crossroads in, in, in 10 to 12 years. And at that point I may, you know, continue to stay in the classroom for a few more years, or I may look to do something else. But right. Well, I'm glad that your school's going to be able to keep you for a little while longer. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's see how this next year goes. <laughs> <laughs> All of us are going to see how the next year goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I'm really curious, too, though, because uh, you've done this podcast for three years now. Four. Oh, four, yeah. Sorry. Four years. Wh yeah. What have you learned about teaching through the life of the school or just um, through about education in general? Yeah. Um, I, I, the biggest thing that I, I would say is I would look at my own individual practice, um, and say that, uh, I have, I, the more and more I talk to other teachers, the more and more I realized that, um, we as teachers are 
li- we limit ourselves um, in terms of the imagination that we bring to what we do. I think we all have, because of our own personal experience and the buildings we teach in and the cultures we teach in, sort of things that we think have to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm teaching this subject, so I have to collect homework, or I have to have these many quizzes, or I have to have tests that look like this, or my labs need to look this, and I've got it like, or I've got to go in this sequence, or this sequence is better than this sequence, and like we have, we create artificial con- uh, constructs to how we do things, and as I have talked to a lot of other teachers, I've realized that it's appropriate to set constructs on how you teach. Because, like, you want your students to have a repeatable, reliable, like, they should know when they come into a space, like, how the space works. It shouldn't be, like, you know, it shouldn't have, like, layers and layers of hidden curriculum to it. It should be obvious how, like, what the goals are and how to learn. But how we construct that, um, you can do so in so many different ways. And you can be very imaginative imaginative and very creative and... um, I, I think I what I've learned is that I've learned to become much more of a risk taker in my um, for when it comes to the 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 content and the curriculum, and I've also become much more um, invested in the people who I work with, and that means both the adults, but also more importantly the kids, and that I really have. I think I've always connected with teenagers, but I have moved that up to be a more of a priority um, over the last few years. I share a lot more of who I am. My kids have a really good sense of me. I don't have a huge filter um, on what I like and what I don't like. And, you know, they 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 hear a lot from me. Um, I, I'm not very guarded about who the person you know, who Aaron Matthew is as a person um, in front of them. But I also engage with them a lot about who they are and, you know, what's important to them. And so I think the thing that I've learned is to be successful, it's got to be all about the kids, but it should also be like, it should be fun for all of the learners in the room. And that should include the teacher. Mm. Um, This is a great segue then into the next question. It sounds to me like, you've grown a lot in the past 25 years and you've learned a lot about what you can accomplish with students when you kind of invest into your students and you take the time to get to know them and let them know who you are as a person, like the Mm -hmm. good things and the bad things and, you know, just who you are. So how do you think you're, um, like, first off, how has, how has it been teaching during this whole COVID-19 pandemic? And then how do you think those experiences that you've had are going to impact, you know, what you do in the classroom in the fall, whether you end up teaching virtually or in person? And um, do you think it's going to make you be a better teacher regardless of the circumstances? Um, Do I think being teaching in this upcoming year in the pandemic is going to make me a better teacher? Um, that's an interesting way of phrasing that because I, I don't think I'm going to be doing my best teaching of my career. (laughs) I think I'm going to be working my hardest. Um, and I think I'm going to learn things about teaching. Um, but I'm also going to be doing a lot of things for the first time. Right. And generally speaking, when I do things for the first time, they're, they're usually a bit of a train wreck that using my experience and guile, I'm able to make work out. Um, and that's really where you have to invest all of that time. So, um, 
so how has it been? So I would say uh, very blessed that I had we when we went away, I had built seven months worth of relationship with my students right. w- when we went to distance, the emergency distance learning. Um, and at that point, my kids knew me and I knew them um, and I was able to help them go over. Again, I don't think it was the most elegant teaching in the world. I, I, I think that but I was able to provide them structure and opportunity. Um, my AP kids did fine on the AP. They were able to get over it. I was able to connect with them. I was able to do some stuff with them. We even did some lab stuff. We tried some other things out. It, it went okay. Um, I think I had some really, I, I also think I connected because of those relationships with some, some of the kids and had some very honest, frank conversations with them about how they were doing and how they were feeling. And I made adjustments on what I was asking them to do. Um, and I think it worked out. I think we did an okay job getting through the end. I also learned that I need to invest better time connecting with my younger students. Um, because as a general rule, younger students in our school are more guarded, um, and older students are more open and free. I think that's part of the journey that happens in the culture of our school. Uh, when you teach like honors and AP students, they are, very they're very afraid to make mistakes when they come in the building Uh when they're honors freshmen so they're they're very guarded and they they don't want to they don't they they don't want to see you they don't want you to think that they're not brilliant or that they're they're making any mistakes and so when they make mistakes they're like apologizing and they have like honestly they have like almost shame about making mistakes um and again this is not all of them (laughs) but there is a cohort of that group. And so when you have a cohort who are risk averse, the culture of that community that you have in that is risk averse. And when you go into an emergency situation, that is a problem. So I am legitimately nervous about building community with the that cohort as I come in. And I will have two groups of my, well, I, I think I will have two cohorts. I actually don't 100% know what my teaching load is um, as we record this in middle August. Um, but I am under the impression that I'm most likely going to be teaching uh, two groups of honors biology students um, in a hybrid plan where I will see half of them on Mondays and Thursdays and half of them on Tuesdays and Fridays. And then all of them for like little mini classes on Wednesdays through remote. Um, and how, and how I'm going to build community with all that. I, I don't know. I have ideas. I've got, you know, plans and doing that stuff. Um, but, uh, I think that the thing that I'm going to learn is it, it's really going to be putting me to the test about how good I can be at building community with, with groups of students, particularly ones who may have struggled a little bit, um, last spring in the emergency situation. How do I help them, really, you know, feel a sense of community that's as strong as it is with my older students. And I don't want to make it sound like it was terrible. Like my honors kids were good and I had really great conversations with them, but uh, my AP kids were like, it was almost no different. Like the personality of my AP classes in Zoom meetings was the personality when we were in, you know, the classroom that we were in, you know, like. This is so interesting to me because my philosophy is actually like, or my experience has been actually the opposite. I feel like the freshmen are, um, even those honors kids that, you know, are really kind of strung up really tightly. They, I feel like they're more open because they don't know what to expect from, they're not, they don't, well, I teach at a high school where kids are coming in from all these different districts 
and then they come to this private school for their high school. And so I, they don't really know what to expect. And they, they're, they seem like they're much more open to try something new. Um, and then the, the, if I, for my, I just started teaching AP biology more recently and the, the juniors and seniors seem like they've, they've been taught a certain way and they're used to being taught a certain way and they're more resistant to change. And so I've, I've struggled with, um, with the, with the older kids more so than with the younger kids in terms of building the community. But so we have the opposite. Yeah. Well, and I also think that like, it, it may also be in part the way I approach the AP. We, we blew up our AP curriculum a couple of years ago and we teach it in a nonlinear, we teach in a very big storyline method where we bring in all kinds of cool research and we do all sorts of like, like my AP class, um, you know, we were, uh, I was noticing that like Lee Ferguson the other day was like lamenting that people were asking for her, like her, her whole canvas to be shared with people who she doesn't know <laughs> online and like, which I can relate. Cause Lee is super open and gives things, but she's like, I'm not, no, I'm not going to give you my canvas class. Like I built this thing. It took me forever. And if I don't know you, I'm not going to give you that. And when, when she said that, I was like, it would be punishment if I gave somebody my AP curriculum. And I was uh -huh. like, here, here's my AP curriculum. Unless you got like the secret decoder ring, which was, is the 25 years that I've been teaching that led to this and all of the weird connections. Like it is the Frankenstein's beast of an AP curriculum that's been built by myself and my colleague that is like, it's, it's this really weird hodgepodge of all of these bizarre like concepts and ideas and side projects. And like, we do like really funky stuff. And it's, so it's like, it has a very, it has a very researchy kind of feel to it. Like I kind of treat them like you have walked into my research lab and I run this research lab. And for the next two months, we're going to be investigating this research question. And now let's go do that. And I'll help you learn all the background content to do that. But like, we're doing this because we're really interested on seeing how fast ladybugs climb up this tube. And it relates to a model system in the Sierra Nevadas in California based off of this research paper and this research paper from these people who are studying these beetles. And, you know, like, you know, it's like it doesn't nobody in the world does what we do in the sequence we do. And we blow it up all the time and move it around. So I think that because it's sort of a the room itself and the curriculum. And also we are established veteran people. Like I, like I'm a, I, I have a personality in my building. So uh. when kids walk into like my AP classroom or Mr. Dempsey's AP classroom, cause we're the two AP teachers, like we both, we have very big personas in the school and, and we're well known. And I think that there's just sort of a, like a, Oh, I'm getting on this journey. Here we go. Kind of, attitude that happens in that room right. um, and I know a lot of the kids I've had a lot of them twice so there's a bunch of kids who were like excited day one so excited we're taking AP and like I had they had they loved biology before and they're like looking forward to the fun projects and I've taught their older brothers and their older sisters so I think that that that's a class where I have such a sense of play myself in it that I probably need to bring a little bit of that into my freshman um Whereas the freshman class is taught, you know, again, in a normal year is taught by like four or five different teachers. Right. We have a collaborative curriculum. Um, you know, there's like in a normal year, there's over 200 kids who take honors bio in our school. So there's like this big and it's it does sort of act like as a funnel, like 
kids come in and they're unsure if they should be there. And so there's, they're nervous, not all of them, but there's a cohort and that, that permeates into the way kids approach that class. So, um, in some ways, I think it's going to be very freeing to be outside of that construct and to be creative about how we're going to do it. Um, but I also know that it's going to, I think it's going to be really hard for us as a, a cohort to collaborate this year. Um, I think we did a really nice job. It, I was really happy with the way we got through the end of the year, but our, our team is going to get shuffled around a lot, I have a feeling, because again, we don't know who's teaching what. So I don't even know how many people are going to be in this cohort, how, like how many students we're going to have what it's going to look like, what's our collaborative time going to be, are we going to be, I know that we all have some things that we sort of disagree about in terms of the curriculum as a whole, even though we come together, and I don't know how much tension the situation of being in this, you know, weird hybrid or remote or like our old curriculum doesn't work, what do we do? Like, there's so many unknowns about what we're about to do if this, there's going to be an added strain that comes in to trying to maintain the, you know, the relationship that we built last year on the curriculum. Um, this is going to definitely test and strain those that the community of, of teachers who are working together. For sure. So in the upcoming years, like we don't know how long this whole pandemic is <laughs> going to last. Yeah. Are you looking forward to something in particular in the classroom? Um, and if so, what is it? Yeah, I would say there's there's a whole bunch of different things that I, I get a little geeked out and excited about when it comes to the upcoming classroom. One of the things that I definitely am I'm looking forward to, um, and I'm sure I'll, I'll talk more about this um, in the upcoming years, is uh, Paul Strode, who's out in Colorado, does a uh, has a pointless curriculum that he has, which is uh, one which is very standards-based grades. And it's more or less, you do a bunch of work, is the way Paul says it. Like, students come in, and they don't have, like, classwork and homework and tests and quizzes. And it's like, yeah, they have tests and quizzes, but, like, it's not that they do a bunch of work, and then you add up the points and divide them at the end, and you get this average. But you do a bunch of work, and, like, all of the work is formative. And all of the work provides feedback about how you're learning your science practices and how you're learning your um, like content objectives and like how you're progressing in the curriculum. And at the end of the quarter, the students look at their progress and they make an argument about how, what grade they deserve based off of the journey they've been on. Um, and I played around with that last year and uh, we did it for our lab sections of our AP biology, which last year for, um, for, for a variety of very weird reasons, it ended up last year that we disaggregated our AP labs from our AP classes. So it, it was really crazy, but we, it was like this new thing that we had never done before. And I convinced, somehow I convinced a whole bunch, I convinced my colleague that we were going to go to this new method. And it, it was really, really positive. Um, it was a positive experience. It was like chaos when we went to the pandemic. Cause like talk about doing a brand new system that you've never seen to the end of the fruition. And you're like <laughs> two thirds of the way through and you're like, uh, now what? Like, it, you know, it was, it, it was really, it, the, the pandemic was a major a problem with it, but we managed to pull it together and, and, and work it out um, to make it work. But what I've, what we're talking about now is because we so don't know about what's going on, the idea that we're going to write up a syllabus that says in the upcoming year, 50% of your grade is going to be tests and 10% is going to be quizzes. And like we had had a meeting at the end of last year where we were talking about our like rubric and our percentages. And I pulled out that number with that, like the old school, like what things were going to be worth. And I pulled it out and I read these numbers and I was like, do any of these categories or numbers mean anything? And he's like, 
you're right. It doesn't mean anything. So I think we are going to, we're going to go further down that road. Um, and, and in, at least in AP biology, we're going to be looking at having, going deeper down to that sort of gradeless model where it's all going to be, it's going to be about the work. And so like, I am, you know, again, this, if you had come to everybody in my building on, you know, the last day of February last year and said, all right, by the way, everybody in the school is going to be on Google Classroom and you are all going to be proficient at running Zoom meetings. And oh, by the way, you're not going to do anything more for grades for the rest of the year. Everybody would have been like, what? Like, you know, like nobody would have believed it. But now that we've gone into this chaos, people are at least more open to having these conversations. So what I thought was going to take us three to four years to get to, I think we're ready to experiment with this now. Um, so, that gets me back to when we were talking about your 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 name yeah. in the beginning of the podcast. Do you think like our American educational system we're just not open to enough experimentation? Because <laughs> I think about I have my son in a bilingual um, Chinese English uh, program. It's yeah. a public school, but it's it's dual immersion. So he's forty percent of the day or half the day is in Chinese and the other half is in English. And I feel like it. It, his brain is being wired differently mm-hmm. and it, it makes him a better student. It makes him more open to learning about different cultures and he, he'll value languages more. So do you have, have you thought about that? Like in terms for your own children or for your, um, like just for a sc- like school in general, do those programs exist in your district? So, so those particular, uh, that, those programs don't, don't operate in my district itself or in the district where my kids go to school, which is a different district. Um, I happen to live about 35 minutes away from the school I teach, um, which is a whole other thing with Massachusetts house pricing uh, and that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I, you know, I haven't really worried a ton about my own kids. My kids are, um, uh, I I am raising two white men. um, Mm -hmm. um, And so uh, my predominant job is to say, um, you have all of these privileges. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I spend a lot of time talking about, uh, like helping them be good at who they are, but my predominant goal for them is to have them grow up and be like good people. Um, and they go to a good school. They have plenty of opportunities. Um, you know, there's, we, they're in a big enough district where they have things to pursue. Uh, my older son is very artistically talented, very like he does math for fun. Like that is his, like he got a five on the BC calc as a junior. Um, like he's just like, he's always done that. He's like looking forward to taking AP stats. Like, I don't know what's wrong with him, but the, like, he's always <laughs> done math. He's always done math and he's always done art. So he's going to be taking AP, um, art portfolio this year and he's taking like, and so he's able to, I've never felt like the things that he wanted to do weren't available to him in the district he's going to. And my, our predominant goal is to make sure that he realizes the amount of space he takes up and the amount of opportunity he has. Um, And, and I'm very, I'm very pleased and proud of the young man that he is at 17. And for my 13 year old, I want him to know that he is a different person than his brother. And he, his had this great brother, but he's his own independent person and he doesn't have to live in his shadow. And he is very talented at music. Uh, like he was writing music. He was playing his saxophone earlier today and was writing music 
over like chat with one of his buddies who lives around the corner who plays drums who they used to get together and play on Friday afternoons you know before this pandemic started um, and they're still collaborating on something and and he's good at math as well and he's good at other things and he's got you know really great hair and like he's got like they they got their they have their own independent talents and I want them to grow up and be like I don't feel like the dis like this the programs that they're in there's plenty of space for them to grow and be really great people. Um, so I haven't really had to worry about those types of things for them. And again, they have two, you know, college educated parents who live comfortably and are, have been able to take them and travel. And, you know, we've had a number of times during this pandemic, we've said things like, you know, the, our last two family vacations we took, you know, we went to, we went to Disney in February, right before everything shut down. Um, and was like awesome. And a year, a year before that, we went to Aruba, um, as a family. So they've had the chance to do that. They've been to Paris, they've been to Madrid. They've had the the opportunity to see, you know, priceless works of art and, you know, ancient cities. And, you know, they, they've, they've been very fortunate in their, in their lives up to this point. And my goal is that they both get to experience things, but also appreciate that they have immense opportunity. Um, and that, my most, the most important thing for me is that they're a good person um, right. above and beyond everything else. So um, yeah, I think their schools are, their schools do a good enough job and they don't do everything, but I don't expect my, their schools to do all the things that I think every kid needs the school to do. Right. So, but we also didn't live in a different country with a different language for years like you did. So <laughs> you have, you have a reason why you would want your kids to continue their bilingual education. I never had that as a, a strong impetus for my kids. Okay. So I, I, I also had wished that, um, well, my younger sister, she, she didn't live internationally. Well, we lived in Mexico for a little while when we were like, when I was younger, but it was like not more than a year, mm -hmm. but, um, she, my, my mother, my younger sister's eight years younger than me. And my mother put her in a lot of different languages when she was younger mm -hmm. and a bilingual preschool. And she just kind of she just was like a genius at languages and she kind of <laughs> soaked them up. And I always wish that I had gone to a, a bilingual school and had that opportunity. I had to start struggling to learn Spanish in high school, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think about that every once in a while as well. I mean, I, as I said, I, w I would love it if I was, if my French was stronger, I wish I had learned Spanish at some point, but I can't speak. I don't, I barely know any Spanish, um, you know, for no other reason that I would love to know what bad bunny saying. Um, but... <laughs> well we'll have to um i could talk to you like all day about like the educational system and like equity in the educational system and the types of programs that are offered in some schools and not at other schools and uh, yeah. the budgeting and all that stuff so we'll have to come we'll have to come back to that later if we have a chance okay <laughs> uh i uh one another question so if you're not teaching what what do you like to do to feel like not that you have time as a teacher <laughs> but if you have free time what do you like to do outside of teaching yeah i have um i am your classic terrible work life balance person um all my hobbies seem to come back to science and teaching um so uh that's kind of how it is uh i would say my the biggest things for me outside um are i i definitely am a runner um mm -hmm. not that i currently have my running body as I, I'm going to go hang out with a 
I have a, I'm going to chat with one of my buddies later on today, uh, who's my normal racing buddy. And I am not in race. I am not at race weight at the moment, um, in pandemic <laughs> times, but yeah, I mean, I, I run, uh, you know, six days a week, um, you know, and anything from, you know, I mean, most days it's like, you know, five or seven miles, that's sort of typical. And I've run seven marathons and wow. a, hand, a handful of half marathons. And I don't really race a ton anymore uh, just because, you know, I'm older and slower. But um, I do like to run. Um, I listen to audiobooks a lot <laughs> when I run. So I, I, I will put in an audiobook or a, I, I listen to a couple of audiobook series over and over and over again. Um, and I or sometimes I'll do music um, in there. So running is definitely a big thing. Um, I'm a big craft beer fan, um, as I've been joking around that I've been supporting all the local breweries as best I can <laughs> during all the ones that do contactless pickup. I know all of them. Uh, so uh, about once a month, I try to drive out to a brewery and 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 support those guys. Um, and I'm blessed to have a lot of those around here. And then, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a slow reader, but a s- slow but steady reader. Um, and I, yeah, I... Uh, I love, I love music. Um, and I ebb and flow in what kind of music and style of music and what I've been listening to, you know, like if you catch me and like, ask me like two months apart, like the four albums that I've been listening to heavy are going to be totally different. Um, you know, at any given time. So, uh, so I go in and out of music all the time. So I guess those are sort of my big things. Have you ever, um, I always say like, if we could, like, if we started teaching kids how to make beer and wine, they might get more interested in science. Yeah. Have you ever done anything like that in your class? Oh, uh, in class? No. Um, in my basement? Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, actually it's a running joke cause, uh, we do a lot of model organism stuff in our AP bio curriculum. And, um, when Brian builds, so we off, we build this, we, we collaborate on everything. Like we run sort of this lockstep curriculum in AP biology, even though it's the two of us, but it's a, a real collaborative build. But what will happen is we'll come together, we'll decide on things and we'll build different things. And so a lot of times, like I'll bring up like challenge questions that are a slide deck. And if the challenge question has to do with yeast in it, like it's a lab that like it's an experiment that has data from yeast, uh, he will, he, Brian will put into the uh, he will put something in about yeast and he'll say, Mr. Matthew's favorite model organism. Uh, and he'll like put that like on the slide. And so like every once in a while, the kids will catch on to why. Uh, but yeah, no, I might have uh, a, a few gallons of homebrew in a kegerator uh, one room over from here. You're basically ready for a pandemic is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, I, I was joking around with Jamie Castle, uh, who teaches in Pennsylvania, who also homebrews. And uh, the the Wednesday before we closed down, um, I ordered uh, three homebrew kits. Wow. <laughs> like like the Wednesday before the pandemic hit, I went on and ordered uh, like grain to, to brew three different beers so that I had because I was like, oh, this isn't going anywhere. So I brewed. Yeah, I, I have brewed four or five batches i think i think five different batches of beer since early march um, oh you you're you're like well I, I i went to a gluten-free diet but i uh oh yeah <laughs> I, I so i'm not going to be doing that but i i would like to try something like something maybe wine or something i don't know but i think yeah fun to do yeah, if my if my mother my because my mother's celiac, uh, if, and you know we talked about that a while ago. Um, if my mother drank beer, I might try to make a celiac. I've looked down that road of making it because you can make uh, gluten free beer. Um, it yes. is possible, and it's I think it's actually probably easier to do on the homebrew scale than it is on the mass market scale. Um, and there are a couple of decent gluten free 
beers out there. Um, you just have to be very stylistically, uh, <laughs> yeah, not every style translates well. Some, right. some, some don't translate well at all. So, uh, but I've never made a gluten-free beer, but I have made, I did make my first lagers, uh, I, which is German lagers because they have a different type of yeast to them and they have to be treated differently. I made my first German lagers during the, the, cause normally it takes a long time to make a lager cause it's like an extra like month of lagering of cold storage and i oh. never i usually don't have but i have had nothing but time <laughs> so so I, I made my first lagers this and they came out all right i was pretty pleased with those so and does your wife enjoy this too does she my, like my wife does not drink beer um which is oh actually <laughs> she does not have any interest in beer she drinks ciders um and i did actually make a cider last year but she just my wife's just not i mean i'm yeah, I, it, that's the that's the downside of this, and that's actually the problem with it. I have I have the ingredients to make more beer, but I just I, I'm not going through. I'm not having friends over to have beer. Like I'm not right. <laughs> like so. Uh, yeah, like normally I would like fill a, a growler and bring it with me, and so that would be like you know half a gallon of beer or a gallon of beer. I could bring that, and so if I do that twice when I make beer, then I can get to that next batch. But right now it's just. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just going to wait till I get close enough down to, to brew another batch. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not power drinking my way through it. It's just sort of a slow, <laughs> slow progress through those. So um, do you have any questions for me for this episode? Oh, I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, cause you're in a private school and um, I know we had a, a conversation the other day Um where I was talking about how in my school and I teach in a big district, there's been a lot of talk about uh, teachers taking leaves of absences, teachers teaching fully remotely, teachers retiring and like just the state of sort of the faculty and staff. And I'm curious if your school has, has been going through some of the same flux about teach, you know, like just having the teachers in the building as the year kicks off? Well, I, I think my, okay, so we depend on tuition. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we we have an endowment and we have, we, you know, we get donations every year as well. But there's uh, a large percentage of the students, at least 25% that are also on financial aid. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to be able to support those students um, that need the support. But we also rely on that tuition. And so I think there's been a big push to keep the doors open, um, right? Because parents could just send their kid to public school for free if school's not going to be open. Um, But there's something like at this community, I think that people feel like that they're not getting um, somewhere else. And so even with Right now, the school's not being open, and we're going to teach at least online for three weeks. People are still um, happy, and they're willing to pay the tuition. And so we're not one of the Catholic schools that's going to be shutting its doors. Like so many Catholic schools have um, been struggling uh, through this pandemic and have closed. Uh, so there, ha- you know, we have like a l- every year. There's there's maybe people who move on. There have been some people who needed to be closer to family because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some teachers who are older who were concerned about their health. But like, I just feel like my school has been so thoughtful and flexible about working with people um, with whatever their needs are. And they just said, like, if, if you need something or you have a concern, 
just let us know. And so we'll work it out like with you guys one-on-one. And if you are the teacher who wants plexiglass in front of your desk, um, you know, cause you're uncomfortable and you want to stay up at the front of the classroom, let us know if, uh, right now I'm, we start school next week and I'm going to be coming into an empty classroom mm-hmm. and I'll be teaching from my room virtually. Um, but the, there's not going to be any kids on campus. And the school has asked that we did that. But they also said, hey, if you have a, a child care situation, let us know. And if you need to stay home, like, we'll work with you. Um, so it's, I think it's, a, there's a lot of difference. Like, I think most people, we get paid well compared to um, other districts in the area. So I don't think anybody wants to, like, quit the job, <laughs> yeah. but there are obviously people who are really concerned about their health, but it's not like we're, um, I don't think that the, there's tension that exists, right? Like we want to yeah. know what the administrator is going to say, but it's a very open, I feel like the, the communication has been very open and the school has been in close contact with epidemiologists that have been advising them and they've always put, it seems like they're putting the health of everybody first more so than just coming up with some plan based off of nothing. They're, they're, they're trying to be, um, I think, cautious. And like, so if, if the kids do come back to campus, our desks have been arranged in a certain way. Like I have a huge, like a huge classroom. Mm-hmm. So the kids all can be spaced out, not exactly six feet apart, but close to six feet apart. They'll be required to wear masks. There are um, paper towels in all the classrooms. It's sanitizer, so we can spray the tables down. Our kids can spray the tables down between classes. There's hand sanitizer at every door. There's hand sanitizer at the entrance to every door. Mm-hmm. Um, they've changed our like dining room so that kids can be spaced out for um, if they want to eat indoors. And then there's spaces all around campus where kids can eat outdoors. So if we <laughs> do come back, I don't feel like I'm going to come back to a situation where I'm... Um, like I know there's always a risk if you have a hundred, you know, kids that you see a day or hundred plus kids you see a day. But I don't feel like um, I'm at like heightened risk by coming to my job if schools open once the rates of infection in Arizona have gone down. Yeah. Uh, where other teachers, I just uh, I've talked to other teachers at public schools, and it seems like there's a lot of chaos at least at some (laughs) schools in Arizona and a lot of decisions have been made very last minute um and so and there have been teachers that have been walking away and there uh there are schools that are scrambling to find teachers to fill certain positions and teachers are being asked like double up on the or like teach you know live classes plus extra virtual classes plus plus (laughs) have like 35 or 40 kids in each class and so I kind of feel like I'm in a a good situation and yeah. the school is doing a, the best job that they possibly can given the circumstances. Yeah, I think the the variety of, you know, and we were we were talking the other day, the variety of of different community like every community is sort of making up their own rules. Like that's yeah. <laughs> and and there's and it's complicated and as a, overall you know, I, I teach, I'm very fortunate in the district I teach in, but, you know, Massachusetts and Massachusetts numbers at the moment are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly out where I live, the numbers have come down a lot. Um, and I also don't think that I also don't live in a place where like 
masks are not that controversial. Um, (laughs) uh, So I feel very fortunate in that regard. But I will also say that we got my, you know, the community where I teach was hit hard um, in April and May. And so um, I think there's, there's there's a lot of trauma from the spring. And so I think it's hard to pull apart there's so much to be un- unraveled in here and we're going back way later than everybody. Like, as I said, we, uh, we don't, ha- we won't have students in classes until like mid September right now. Um, Cause they keep pushing things back and pushing things back, which is only a couple weeks later for us. But I know we start later than every other part of the country in general. Uh, and so we're starting later than that this year. Uh, but it's, it, yeah, a lot's got to be walked, worked out this year. And um, the fact is, I still don't know because we're sort of delayed because we start later. A lot of those decisions that are being made, have had to be made elsewhere in the country, we're just getting to now. So I, I know that, as I said, there there's teachers who were making decisions like like this morning or yesterday morning about whether or not they were taking leaves of absences like that. They, and so our school, they, there's going to be they're finding out like today and tomorrow what, who they have to hire. Um, they're still finding those types of things out about people retiring and hiring and stuff like that. So a lot is going to change in the next few weeks. Um, in yeah, terms that's, r- that's rough for the schools. Yeah. We, we've, we've made it past that point already. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in a, a couple, a couple weeks we'll know those same things. So, um, but all right. I hope, um, I hope it all works out and that everyone's able to stay safe. Yeah, yeah, and I the, that I think that that's one of those other things is that what everyone decides is what is safe, and where people are comfortable. Like you are gonna no no nobody is gonna be a hundred percent happy. You're not gonna have a single school where everybody's like, "Yup, everybody is happy with the amount of in- engagement," because people are unhappy because of the pandemic, and everyone has a different answer as to how to solve it. <laughs> But yeah. like when you read the comments in my community, people are like, we must go back to school. Everybody back to school. Da, 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 da. And other people are like, nobody go back to school. <laughs> you know, and there's people in our community who are like, who will make comments like my kid won't be going to school if they have to wear a mask. And I like my wife and I are looking at that going. So does that mean they're going to do remote learning? Because the requirements say that everybody needs a mask, or are they saying that they're going to send their kid to school and he's not going to wear a mask? What does this comment mean? <laughs> it means that they're angry. Yeah, that's exactly what it means. It means that they're angry. And but uh, it, like there was like they released the comments that were on the survey uh, and in our district, and there were forty-two pages of comments oh on this on the survey. Uh, that we were going through and we were we like she was reading like the first p- couple pages out loud about all of them and then scanning through to find the just like the the absurd contradictoriness that would go like comment to comment to comment like you would literally read four comments in a row and there would be no way to open schools where all four, like you would have to open four completely separate schools to make the four people in a row happy like well you know a lot of the public schools have done that they have yeah. said you have a virtual option then yeah. you can have the hybrid option or you can have the in-person option yeah and so you had to, we had to actually as parents for our children pick which option we wanted yeah, we had a little bit of that, although, yeah, it's we're pretty much all, everyone in Massachusetts. Everyone in Massachusetts is either uh, hybrid or fully remote. Um, oh, okay. I don't know that there's any districts in Massachusetts that are going back fully. I mean, there might be there might be a couple of the small Western Mass districts that are, again, small schools, you know, very low community transmission where it might make sense for them. But I think that uh, the surveys say that nearly everybody is either going back fully remote or a hybrid similar to what my district's going for. Um, so that'll be interesting. 
Well, it's been like, I learned a lot about you today. It's been an amazing <laughs> uh, discussion. Normally you have your picks of the week. So what what's your pick of the week for today? Well, I, I actually, it's, I've, I've, I've hijacked it and I've made it a shared pick. Um, so, oh, you, cool. you know, earlier you, you lamented uh, that like, oh, maybe we can get this time later on to have some conversations about, you know, school policies and equity and funding and that sort of stuff. Um, and so uh, in addition to being uh, a cute way of having somebody else interview me, this is also the time where we're going to announce that uh, we're changing the life of the school uh, format. Uh, and Yay! Do you have like an applause you can put in the background? And so, yeah, this September, uh, I am going to be joined with Tanea and Lee Ferguson and Ryan Laxon. And we are going to be putting out a new life of the school. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But the the, the first week of September, uh, I will put out a podcast. I probably will put it out on all my normal my feeds, you know, the the Twitter and on um, I'll maybe put it in some of the Facebook communities as well, um, and I'll put it out there. And uh, we're just going to start doing more of a, a roundtable where we're going to tackle some topics that we think are pressing. And I think we're going to have no shortage of topics in year one of pandemic. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I am super excited. This has been something that um, I have been uh, talking about. I know that I had conversations with people back at NABT last November. Remember when we could go to NABT and be in person? Um, I know. I'm so <laughs> sad that that's not going to happen this year. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited about some of the sessions that I know because I reviewed sessions for it. So I'm still excited about learning stuff. But yeah, I would, I'm would. i bummed that we're not going to be all in Baltimore this year. Uh, but back last year when we were in Chicago, I was talking to folks about how, you know, I, I was I was thinking that the, the it felt like it was ready. It was time to do something different. And I didn't know if it would mean a new podcast or a retooling of this one. And and I was so psyched that. Um, so I, I got Lee and, and Lee and I started talking. I, I had some conversations with Lee about that. And uh, when we, we both sort of started talking about people. And I was so excited that that both you and, and Ryan were immediately on board. And I was like. I was, I was shocked that like we came up with it and I will tell you, we didn't invite dozens and dozens of people. Uh, <laughs> there was, there was like, I think four emails sent. I sent one to Lee. She sent one to you. <laughs> she sent one to Ryan. And that was how we like, that was it. That, that was the chain. That, that was the group that we got. So I am, I'm psyched. It's a dream team as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, to our recording. So we're going to record our first episode in, in late August and put it out in early September. And we're going to put, we got on schedule, the first few months. So um, I, I'm super psyched for it. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. Yeah. And I think it's going to be good mental health to have, like, I have a feeling that we're all going to go through some ups and downs this year. Um, and having, you know, a once or twice a month check in with, with colleagues uh, to talk about something and to talk about it. And we're going to try, I'm going to try to make everyone be positive. Um <laughs> Because that's my, because because that is my undying. You asked earlier how I stay young. One, I have I run every day, and two, is I have this like stupid undying optimism, and uh, like <laughs> I have a very well, hopefully it's contagious. Yeah, I have a very I'm I just like I get excited about things, and I have this like positive energy. Um, that's not to say I don't get down, uh, but I think that talking about things that excite me, um, is good for me. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. 
All right. Well, I'm going to hijack my, my, my episode back and I'm going to talk credits. Um, so please subscribe to Life of School on your podcast player of choice because new episodes, new forms coming out soon. You can uh, go to patreon.com slash lots and support our work. Uh, that's going to help maybe buy some microphones and some other gear for, for folks as we move into this new uh, collaborative space. Uh, music by this uh, music for on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Expeditions. You can get show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter. Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Tanea, what's your, are you on Twitter at all? I'm on Twitter at um, Tanea underscore Hibbler. Tanea underscore Hibbler. And uh, yeah, you can also uh, tweet at me. I think my DMs are open for Life of the School as well. So if you ever want to have comments for the show, you can always send comments there. Well, Tanea, thank you for taking over this podcast. This was awesome. I, um, you have, you've lowered my stress level so many ways in the last week um, by one, joining onto our panel and becoming part of the team that we're having there. And two, helping me get this podcast out, uh, which has been a little bit of a dream of mine to be interviewed for my own show. Uh, I hope that you are happy with the product that you have. <laughs> well, yeah, I am. I am. I am psyched. I mean, last night we 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 barely got. I, we were on for like what seventy five minutes last night, and I think we barely talked. We it's going to be impossible to rein us in. I think that's going to be the downside. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the. That'll be the only downside to the new format is that getting it down into actual episodes from the ramblings that are going to be the group of us. So, all right. Well, yeah. thanks for thanks for joining us, and I will. I'll talk to everybody soon. Yeah. Thank you.